I will just go through some of the Twitter mentions. I mean, I had such a great response from Stephen Keller. He picked Jurassic Park as it's his favorite movie about dinosaurs, The Martian, as he loves movies about space, and The Green Mile, as he can't help but cry every time he watches that movie. Uh, hi, Jonathan. Uh, he said Lord of the Rings, and he went with The Two Towers. He also picked Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Amy T91, as uh, she said, Still Alice because it obviously showed the devastating onset of Alzheimer's. Um, Speak, she says it shows the after effects of being raped and how it can take your voice away. And she also said to kill a mockingbird because it's a classic. And Maddie loves her classic films. said Rebecca from 1940, The Remains of the Day from 1993, and Silence of the Lambs as they are a near perfect page to screen adaptations. Audrey said Stardust book is great, but kind of improves upon it. No, c'est ce que je disais. Oui, moi, c'est bâté, c'est de la blague. Après tout, tout est beau. Il n'y a qu'à s'intéresser aux choses et les trouver belles. Time has come. Catherine Bigelow! This and some of the other nice things that have happened to me in the last couple of days may turn me into some sort of hopeful optimist and ruin my whole life. Spoil? I remember quite clearly, it was 1946, and I was four years old, my mother took me to see King Vidor's Duel in the Sun. You've got to say, I'm a human being! God damn it! My life has value! Babel, Alejandro González Iñárritu. I'm a man! Well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> Al film italiano Deserto Rosso di Michelangelo. It's just that all men are sure it never happened to them, and most women at one time or another have done it, so you need the math. Three artists in the presentation of the Palm Door. Adele, Leia, and Abdel, 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 We won! Oh, it is not over. We must continue. Oh! Oh, I did not know that. This is episode 65, and on today's podcast, we're talking about the best screen adaptations, maybe. I don't know how we would put that. I mean, just just the adaptations of books uh, that we've really enjoyed, and, and either because they've stayed faithful to the source material or they've expanded on the source material. Um, so we've got some really, really interesting picks. All players. All plays, yes. Or, yeah. I mean, no, video, no video games, I hope. Uh, <laughs> right, hang on. Um, <laughs> That's the way you get rid You're like, uh, <laughs> Oh, God. That would just, yeah, that would just be a really short <laughs> podcast. So, yes, uh, joining me today is Robin. Hello, everybody. Hello. And also Aaron. Hey there. Hi, Aaron. And... Last but not least, it's Doug. Hi, everyone. So let's get. Who would like to go first? Robin, what's what's your first pick? Uh, my first pick is one of two that the, it was adapted by the guy who wrote the original, or girl. Uh, this is William Peter Blatty who wrote The Exorcist. With sort of, he, he wrote it like in '71, and it was kind of with a film possibly to, to you know to follow. William Freakin was making the French connection and then I think he really wanted to make this so he's like finish your book and we'll make it and that's how it works really obviously he won the Oscar for, for the French connection and then made Exorcist in 73 and it's kind of one of the one of the most uh, what's the word sort of fearful adaptations and I, I suppose it's because Blatty was allowed to write a screenplay as well which doesn't happen a lot and I don't think sometimes they often want to um but this guy did and based on the just written the book uh, and it's it's a great book and it's very there's not a lot missing i'll be i'll be honest with you uh, obviously it's a little bit drawn more drawn out in the book but um and it's one of my favorite films uh, ever but it's it's a really well-rounded story some real familiar themes there even back then but it was like quite a brave move as well because in the 70s as we know well 67 we're doing now but kind of the 70s when more risks were taken or um, harder film, darker films were being made and this went on obviously to receive Oscar nominations which for a horror film 
mm-hmm. as Hereditary will tell you, uh, it just doesn't. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, it's it's a great screenplay, and it's caused when it was released. Obviously, people were puking in the in the theatres, and it was banned. I know in the UK, it was it was banned for a while, and people find it quite funny some of the lines, but. All those lines are in the book, by the way. Everything's in the book, and there's oh, more. Really? In... Yeah. And there's more in the book as well, like just some of the differences, like the the demon uh, Pazuzu, Pazuzu um, talks refers to the family as pigs quite a lot. So um, she's got it. She's called the piglet. Calls Reagan the piglet. And there's kind of theme of that pig thing, um, but that's not really in the film. Yeah, I mean, what, what do you guys think of this film? And have, have you read? Um, I haven't read the book, but I love the film. Um, and uh, I am now intrigued to go uh, pick up a copy of the book after hearing you t- discuss it because uh, I I know that this it was based on the uh, Exorcist account of a young boy, so I think the decision to actually have a young girl is a bit more effective, just because of what happens and, and certain scenes that happens and. and pieces of dialogue so I, I think it's you know you could always like oh young boys say that stuff all the time but you know <laughs> it comes out of a, a young girl's mouth it's far more especially, especially I think across, yeah, yeah the, the, oh my god the crucifix yeah. scene I mean that, <laughs> you struggle to keep that in a film nowadays I think um, yeah. mm, so you can mm. kind of see why it was a bit like Clockwork Orange that kind of reputation that I can understand why it was banned but that it's out there, and, you know, got Oscar coverage, and it's beloved now, and you know, classics. So. And did it um, did it win anything at the Oscars in terms of screenplay at all? Yeah, he won. He won for that. And it won. I think it would uh, sound and editing or something like that as well. Uh, that's a good choice. I like mm, it. Love it. I'm definitely gonna have to get um, the knob now. Uh, although I'll probably be like blaming you when I've got to have like therapy or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's worse when you read it. It just like uh, you can imagine it. I think seeing it on screen is one thing, but actually reading it just makes it to at least your mind gets warped by it. But it's oh. really easy to read as well. I mean, it's quite it's really tight. It's got the, everything in the film, but it's just a bit. Like, you know, the bit at the beginning when he's digging in Iraq, that's all in there. It's just a bit longer, I think it's like a couple of chapters, but it's really important. And then he doesn't show up again until, like, the last third. So it's really weird how it's set up, but that's how it is in the book, yeah. So do you feel like where the movie diverts from the book, it it makes the movie better? Because that's something I'm always interested in with adaptations, is, like, is it just a straight, everything is in there, or are there some diversions that it takes, and does that actually help? No, it doesn't really take any diversions. You can just see there's bits missing or, like, some of the fat that doesn't really work. Right. You know, yeah. I, I know they probably had to cut quite a bit from it, but um, there's a, you don't really know anything about Regan's father either, but that's not... He's not in the book, but there's more of a... The devil... The, the When she's possessed, she says, like, starts pointing the finger at, at Chris, the mother, to say, you've, you've neglected your daughter. There's all that in there, which is slightly implied in the film but you never really think she's a bad mother excellent first pick i mean you know how how are we going to top that uh, <laughs> i don't know <laughs> um, let's find that, out yeah yeah uh let's go with aaron What's your yeah first i can pick? i can kind of keep us going on the sort of religious 
theme, although this is a very different take on it than The Exorcist. But um, So my first pick is my personal favorite Martin Scorsese movie, uh, and that's his most recent movie, Silence. Uh, he's had quite a bit of success with adaptations, and I think most people would probably pick some of his other adaptations than, than this one, but I, I absolutely love it. Um, and I know it didn't do as well from a box office or Oscars perspective as his other movies, but um, I actually read the novel in college, and I remember just as we, it was for a class, and just as we were finishing um, the class discussion, I saw a news report that Scorsese would be making the movie, and I was just like, okay, comes out, I'm going, I'm seeing it opening day, and mm-hmm. it's going to be fantastic, and it just blew all my expectations out of the water. I mean, I just, I loved it. I guess as we're talking about adaptations, maybe for me, I personally, you know, and you'll probably see this in some of my picks, I always like movies that sort of take the book and, you know, it's not just a straight word-for-word visual dictionary, right? because you can't really do that with a book. Like you said, you know, even even Exorcist, where it keeps it fairly similar, you know, you, you can't have a, you know, four-hour-long movie. There's going to be some things that you've got to pull out. Um, and so I, I always like films that sort of think out. How are we going to put this in a visual medium? You know, what works so well in the written word, in the novel form, how are we going to take this to a movie? And I just think Scorsese did such an incredible job of formatting, you know, his visual language. We're so used to seeing Scorsese moving the camera around and having all these visual flares. And I love that in his other movies. But for Silence, he needed it to be more of just a straight, the camera is going to watch what happens, right? And it's going to be more subdued. That just... I think served the film. So, uh, and the later scenes in Silence just wreck me emotionally. I mean, it's just thinking about if you're in the shoes of this priest, like, would be happening inside you. If they did what you wanted, then let them go. Let them go. They they they, they did what you wanted, so let them go, please, 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 let them go. We don't want them. For farmers, there are still hundreds of Christian peasants on the islands off the coast. We want the padre to deny and be an example to them. Apostatize, apostatize. For their sake, Lord, do not leave this to us. I was going to say, like, somebody like yourself who is more in tune with religion than certainly I am, you perhaps get something, you're not different from it, but you get a sort of higher, higher perception of it, if that makes any sense, like we did with the Bergman stuff. Yeah. You can relate uh, you to know, it, so you get a little bit more that I quite I reach because of, you know. And I think there was probably a lot of that in the reception of the movie. I certainly get, like, it's, you know, it's, uh, I forget what its runtime is, but, you know, it's a longer film. It it deals with, you know, heavy religious themes, you know, tour. I mean, it's not, you know, and it got released right around Christmas time. It's not a movie that the whole family is probably going to go see and just love. You know, it's... Yeah, there's there's a specific audience for it. I mean, I think there are things in it that everybody can enjoy. The visual art, you know, on display. I mean, Scorsese is a master, right? And yeah. and it, we're talking about the adaptation. I think the writing in it is beautiful. But yeah, for me personally, um, I do get a lot out of just this idea of when you're talking about faith. You know, it is this very personal thing that you hold tightly to. And what happens when you get put in a situation where you're asked to either hold, continue to hold tight to that faith, and if you do that, other people are going to get hurt. What do you do in that? Like, what, you know, and from a Christian perspective, it's like, what what do the teachings of Jesus say to do in that situation? And there's actually a verse um, in Romans where the Apostle Paul says, he would rather be cursed for eternity if it meant all of Israel, all of his Israelite brothers and sisters could be saved. And I think that idea certainly flows through the book a lot of, you know, am I going to give up myself to save other people, um, and I think Scorsese finds that just beautifully in the film. And so, yeah, it's certainly something that, to me personally, I think has a lot of just emotional resonance, but um, I, I'm i just, one of the things that impresses me so much about the adaptation is kind of what I said earlier, just that Scorsese 
you know, he's he's a master, but he, you know, lauds him and praises him, and, and he's considered, I mean, one of the greatest artists in movie history, right? And then here at this late point in his career, he decides, you know what, I'm going to go a completely different route, and I'm going to, you know, maybe do some things, you know, completely differently than I've done in my earlier movies, and I'm just going to try to serve this story that I think for him was pretty personal too, right, as somebody who at one point considered becoming a priest. So I just think that takes a lot of courage as an artist to say, I'm going to put aside what has been so successful for me in the past, and I'm just going to serve this specific story. You can tell, like, the director really cares about the material, which, you know, often some directors, when they do screen adaptations, you think, have they even heard of the book? Have they read the book? Um, Mm. um, Doug, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, So mine's a bit of a guilty pleasure, um, (laughs) and and that's the, The Devil Wears Prada. (laughs) <laughs> Which is nice. a, de- a devil, a devil, different kind. Um, <laughs> I see a theme going on. There here. we go. <laughs> so the the novel itself, I mean, it's it's a bit of a trashy novel. It was it was a quite popular, and I think it it sort of tapped into that, uh, uh, I guess, interest in in fashion and interest in the the magazine side of things. And obviously, it's sort of semi based on Anna Wintour who is, you know, kind of an icon of the fashion industry and, and well known for being quite, you know, cold and and a, a little bit scary. Um, in in terms of the adaptation from book to screen, I think on in the book the the character of Miranda Priestley is quite one dimensional. Uh, she doesn't have any seeming qualities. We don't really get to see the human side of her. Uh, she is played as a one note villain throughout that entire book. And I think when you cast someone like Meryl Streep in that role, you are definitely not going to get a one-dimensional character. And what she does with that character, and you know, absolutely then deserved her Oscar nomination, is really finding a lot of layers in that. It, it, she's not just she's not just a bitch. That there is more to her. There's the reason behind every action she's doing. She's obviously got some uh, personal issues going on that the book doesn't really delve into and doesn't show. So that that is the, the, the great achievement there is that if you, if you were to film and then go and read the book, I think you'd probably be a little bit disappointed because you're not reading Meryl in that book at all. You're not reading the character that she actually creates, and that's that's the greatest success of that movie. Um, you know, it's quite funny that she, she gets nominated as uh, the lead character when, when in the book She's supposed to be the supporting, but she just steals that film. Hmm. There are some other minor differences in that. Uh, the, the, the ending of the book, uh, she Anne Hathaway's character actually gets fired. She doesn't quit. She doesn't have that moment of sort of self-empowerment that she's finally had enough and she's walking away. Uh, Miranda Priestley actually fires her. And they don't have sort of a reconciliation moment where she gives, in the film, she gives her a grievance and you realise that she actually was you know, uh, pushing her along the whole time to try and encourage her because she saw how great she was. I have actually read that there was an interview that the author of the book wasn't happy with the adaptation hmm. because she pr- she preferred Miranda Priestley to remain a dehumanized character that she was just the villain. And I think that comes from her personal experience that she wrote the book of, of her experience working with uh, Anna Wintour. And so she, I don't think she was particularly happy to see some redeeming qualities given to she obviously had some you know some bad dealings with that she wasn't happy with how that was put up on screen but i think in terms of the film then it's far more rounded and it's much more enjoyable that you that that that's this is one of those situations where the the movie actually i would say is, is far better than the book but the book scream your name actually it's andy my name is andy andrea but uh, everybody calls me andy I need 10 or 15 skirts from Calvin Klein. Okay, what kind of skirts do you... Please bore someone else with your questions. And make sure we have Pier 59 at 8 a.m. tomorrow. And remind Jocelyn I need to see a few of those satchels that Mark is doing in the pony. And then tell Simone I'll take Jackie if Maggie isn't available. Did Demarchelier confirm? Demarchelier? Demarchelier? Did he get him on the phone? Uh, okay. 
And Emily? Yes. That's all. Plays the foundation really well, and then I think they've they've kind of expanded on that in the film. I haven't actually read the book, um, so or seen the film. Which is, oh really? Oh wow! I know, I know, terrible. Definitely read The Exorcist. Watch it from <laughs> after this podcast. So, um, mine is um, also to do with religion and God. Uh, um, mine's The Godfather. Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, I have chosen this because I, I've read the novel and I'm, the novel is just, I don't, I don't think it's a bad novel, it's just not a very good novel, it's very average. I mean, it has all the characters there and it has all the sort of building blocks there, it's just not, just like the, some of the characters that are missed out from the film play a big role in the novel and I really find that kind of distracting like you know there's the the whole character of uh, Johnny Fontaine he is given more of a arc in the in the novel and it goes more into how he's bedding this woman and how he's bedding that and he's a really great lover because the film's not really about him it's the film is about you know Michael's journey by sort of centering more on the character of Michael and how he goes from being on the outside of the family and not really being that involved into, you know, becoming the new godfather. It's a really interesting journey that we go on with him. And I think as well, like, the novel just feels very sort of pulpy, very sort of... I had a great time reading it because it was just this kind of like trashy in the kind of way where you're like reading a twilight novel or a 50 shades of gray <laughs> novel like you know it's like everybody's reading it. let's get caught up in it and, and read it even though obviously I, I wasn't reading the godfather when it first came out the film is just so epic it's great to see how they've taken the premise of the novel and said yeah this is great we we like these characters we take these characters we like the world that is set in like the sort of journey that the, the characters are going on and they've just created something that is so far superior in my eyes Quando sta meglio, cerchiamo di fare un più ognuno e mettiamo tutto a posto. Steve Saria, si deve finire. That's one of the that you know that, uh, that is one of the great character arcs in, in, in the history of film, and just in just the first yeah. film, but obviously the second one as well. <laughs> so speaking of the no, I'm only kidding. Um, <laughs> so I'm going with uh, Gone Girl now, with it being another one that's kind of where the author was allowed to write the the film, and it's a woman. Uh, and I also talk about the Oscars here as well. <laughs> but first, I'll just say that I read this book, um, When Gone Girl. The marketing for Gone Girl, by the way, was absolutely incredible. Like, people mm. wanted to see that film six months before the film was even released. And the book mm. was obviously a big part of that. And I was part, I got swept up in that because, of, obviously, I'm a big Fincher fan as well. But this, this, looked, this looked great. Uh, and I read the book. I remember we went to Greece at some point and I was reading it on the plane, you know, I, I just had to finish it. And I finished it on the way back and I remember the ending, I was like... Oh, yeah. What? No, that's not right. Because I was reading, on the, <laughs> I was reading it on the Kindle as well, so it's like it tells you how many pages you've got. What it didn't tell me was it was about ten pages that are just blank and, like, credits, you know, at the end. So I was like, oh, there's a few pages. Oh, he's going to kill her, is he? She's going to... Uh, uh, oh, he's staying with her. Right, that's it. <laughs> but it kind of blew on me that... That they, that they ended in that way. But I was thinking, reading it, because I knew Fincher was going to make it, I 
was reading it, imagining what the Fincher film would be like, you know, and he kind of nailed it, you know, either way you think David Fincher's going to make a film, I think it was absolutely perfect match for him. Um, and they didn't really change the ending in that the sort of lack of conclusion and that the kind of worst scenario happens that after all of that, you know, he agrees to st- stick around. As for the, the film, when it came out and I watched it, I was like, that's pretty much what I imagined. Um, not a lot was changed. The kind of, it's like unreliable narrators in the book. It's, he's, Ben Affleck's character's kind of saying things as they happen. He's like, you find out he's pretty clueless, but he doesn't, he doesn't realise <laughs> what's happening. And then when she's sort of saying it in past tense, and obviously the, the middle scene, the cool, the cool girl, whichever whichever one raves is like a great piece of writing and it is um, that's when we that past tense makes a bit more sense you know because she then goes on to say well actually this is what i have in mind and it's done really well in the book really well like descriptive and it's done really well on on the film as well because that could have been really tough that if you want to call it a twist you know that that switch and it covers things like media uh, Gillian Flynn used to mm. work in the media industry as a writer, so she's like the economy, you know, because of the the 2008 I think I'm pretty sure mm. she included that in there. They both lose their jobs, don't they? Both characters, you know, it was really she was was able to do this and have uh, Gillian Flynn write the script, proving herself to be a very very good screenwriter as well. But she wrote it with a real eye for film, and I imagine she must have sat with Fincher and they must have talked about it. And it's great that they met eye to eye, you know, mm. and which she proved again with Widows that the, a director was, you know, such an energetic director, holds bad. She's able to, you know, write material with them and and not get Oscar nominations for it. Widows, <laughs> you know. I, I'll just touch on the Oscars. I think it's the best adapted screenplay of that year. And 2014, the, the actual nominees, wait. Yeah. Um, the, the eventual winner imitation game. I mean, that, that was. Yeah. We all know why that <laughs> did well. The most interesting change is um, Desi, who's played by Patrick Harris. I mean, it is a spoiler, but he he does die, but you don't really see what happens in the book when you're reading it. And she's like drugs him and then just kills him. But in the film. I mean, when, yeah. I, when I watched it... You see it in the film. Yeah. <laughs> we saw the pictures. The pictures were released of her covered in blood and nobody understood what that was about. Having read the book. Yeah. No. I'll never forget seeing that in the theatre. No. Like, that just... No. It is... Yeah. And the music... Ingrained. The editing, uh, it's like... The, the, there's editing. Fincher's editor... Kurt Baxter, I think his name is. He's won two Oscars. I mean, that scene, if you watch it again, I'm sure you will. When she, when she cuts him... And she actually cuts away to her throwing the blade across the room, and it comes to one cut straight back. It's like you almost miss it. You know, that attention to detail that mm. she, she so methodical that she had this blade. She kills him with it, knows exactly what to do, and she knows to just get rid of it because she has to hold him down while he's... And Rosamund Pike. Uh, she's, she's so uh, good. She is immense. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Nick and Amy will be gone, but then we never really existed. Nick loved a girl I was pretending to be. Cool girl. Men always use that, don't they, as their defining compliment. She's a cool girl. Cool girl is hot. Cool girl is gay. Cool girl is fun. Cool girl never gets angry at her man. She only smiles in a chagrin, loving manner, and then presents her mouth for fucking. She likes what he likes, so evidently, he's a vinyl hipster who loves fetish manga. If he likes girls gone wild, she's a mall babe who talks football and endures buffalo wings at Hooters. When I met Nick Dunn, I knew he wanted cool girl. And for him, I'll admit, I was willing to try. I wax stripped my pussy raw. I drank canned beer watching Adam Sandler movies. I ate cold pizza and remained a size two. I blew him, semi-regularly. I lived in the moment. I was fucking game. Aaron, would you like to go next? Sure, yeah. So for my next one, I'm going to... These are the books and movies that kind of started it all for me. So I could kind, I could cheat, I guess, if I wanted to, and just pick the series. But uh, I'm not going to cheat. I'll pick one of the 
um, three and uh, I'm talking about the Lord of the Rings uh, books and, and movies and I'll go specifically with the return of the king. Um, I remember when I, I read the books in Elmo first and I went through this I, I, I had this tradition then where I would read through the series every year for a while and I, I stopped that um, a couple years ago but yeah there was a time period in my life where I'd read the three books every year because I just loved them so much. And uh, I remember when the movies came out and it was just like this euphoric national event, you know, here in America, everybody had to go see them. I, I just kind of felt like this huge event, you know, you're going to this movie um, that it seemed like everybody was seeing. And uh, yeah, it was just kind of, I, and with both books and movies, um, the, the Lord of the Rings, that's kind of like my starting point, kind of what got me hooked uh, early on and I just think when we're talking about adaptations and sometimes you talk about books that should be impossible to adapt and you know people try to do them and uh, just don't really it doesn't really work out and I think on paper the Lord of the Rings should be like it, you shouldn't be able to adapt those to a movie it's just there's too much detail there's way too much world building that you have to do but I think it works because Peter Jackson just said, you know what, I'm going to do the same amount of attention to detail um, and, and I'm just going to pour my entire life into this. I mean, I still don't understand how he did that, um, but there's just so much attention to detail here. And I think The Return of the King, maybe of all three, is, is the best example of that, of, you know, just those scenes that are so epic and, and yet down to the, you know, smallest little, um, you know, character detail, the costumes, the, I mean, just all comes together. Um, and even the visual effects don't feel, um, you know, like they, they pull you out of it. It seems like it's adding into experience. And uh, I, I think more than anything, what he did a great job of was, you know, obviously we think of this as this huge, massive epic. But to me, what's key about those stories is, you know, you yes, you've epic journey that they're going on, but really the focus is the importance of the simple life back in the Shire, right? These, these hobbits that you don't think are important at the beginning of the story, they end up being the most important characters there are. And so it's just this idea of there are no unimportant, and even the simple things that um, we think, you know, aren't, aren't worth that much, uh, they, they can be very important. And I think, you know, Peter Jackson did an incredible job of showing that. Even, like, there's a scene that's probably my favorite of all three movies where Gandalf and Pippin are talking, you know, in the middle of, of the battle. Um, and it's just this small, you know, it, it seems like a scene that you could have probably cut out. It seems like it's something that you could just pass over. But, again, Peter Jackson just puts so much into even those little sort of flyover scenes that, to me, that scene where they're talking about sort of the afterlife um, and, and, you know, what, what happens after the battle, even if they lose, you know, what, the, what would happen... Um, uh, to me, is some writing of, of the whole series. I didn't think it would end this way. End? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path. One that we almost take. The grey red curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. Then you see it. And Elf. See what? White swords. And beyond. The far green country. And a swift sunrise. And I seem so bad. And it's actually almost word for word out of uh, a section from the Fellowship of the Ring, actually. So it's interesting how Peter Jackson, yeah, he, he in some ways, you know, was very faithful. And then in other ways, he kind of, you know, tweaked some things and made it his own. Um, I, I'll just always look at those movies as just an incredible work of, of adapting something that on paper uh, I would look at and just think, how in the world are you going to do this? 
That takes a lot of skill, though, to have those three books in front of you. And as a filmmaker, you have to t- change them from books into essentially... Yeah. And to say, well, I'm going to take that from the Fellowship. I think it goes better there. That, how, how do you get that perspective to think like that? That's a real skill. As a yeah. writer, you know, not just a director, but as a writer. Mm. It deserves massive credit. And I know the books are very detailed. That must have been a great blueprint blueprint for the costumes and set decks as well. Mm-hmm. So he kind of adapted that about putting the, all the detail in, you know, like... Like American Psycho, the, the detail in that book, if that had been in the film, <laughs> it would have been massive. But <laughs> this kind of thing, with it, because it's visual, it works, and it gave him that blueprint to make just just far our films, you know, around. Right, the- yeah. But I think that one of the, the did was to make the, all three at the same time, so that they're working on a trilogy as a trilogy rather than piece by piece by piece. So mm. he could have that overarching vision of, of what the entire trilogy would be from the start. And that that has never been done for of someone to have that kind of vision to say, this needs to be done together so that it remains cohesive throughout this entire trilogy. Yeah, and the thing is, they, they had to get them filmed quite quickly because they didn't want the hobbits to grow any taller. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, and also if uh, we're going to be complaining about Oscars, I don't know if it's fair to complain about a film that got 11 Oscar nominations, mm. but how it didn't get a Best Cinematography nomination oh. is not understand. <laughs> so but... yeah. uh. I think sound as well. Yeah. Okay, let's yeah. go. Let's Before Robin goes on a massive Oscar <laughs> round. Well, I bet you're next, Doug's next. But Doug's next one. Yeah. Some yeah. Kind of yeah. Doug's, Sorry. Doug's next. <laughs> <laughs> My next one is uh, Brooklyn, which thankfully was nominated for Best Picture, which I was so, so happy about. Um, and I still, as much as I loved Brie Larson's performance, I still maintain that Saoirse Ronan should have won Best Actress. I know it was a, a much more understated performance, and that obviously doesn't often capture Oscar voters. Um, but her performance in that film, is it's just beautiful. And the, the film itself is one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. And it's a film that I will rant and rave anyone who will listen and, and demand that they watch. And I, I, I love that practically everyone I've told to go and watch it has walked away loving it as well. I don't think, I, I don't know how anyone can't love that film. But um, in terms of the book, the book itself is, I mean, it's not a masterpiece, but it, it is a very nice, enjoyable read. And um, it's sort of a breezy novel you can kind of get through. But the, the adaptation certainly um, with Ailish's character makes her much less passive. Um, she starts out obviously passive and timid and shy, and but over the course of the film, she does become quite a strong a woman and, and sort of take control of her own life and, you know, refuses to, to just kind of you know, stay back and, and let things uh, play out. She takes far more control of everything. The real reason she kind of comes back to America is because the, the, her secret marriage is about to be revealed and she doesn't want the, the, the rumours to get out and all that kind of stuff. It's not, not so much to return to Tony. Uh, the ending as well in the book is is uh, much less specific that she does return to Tony and have that kind of beautiful reunion that she has at the end of the film. Uh, it just shows her planning to leave Ireland, but we don't actually see her return to New York. I think... The, the the film, had we watched that film and seen her journey and then not really explicitly see how it ended, it would have been very disappointing. And I think that, that that's a little disappointing in the book is it's it's more left to the reader to decide happens to her when she comes back to New York, whether she reunites with Tony or, you know, whether she decides to go her own path. But the, the film is obviously much more specific in that she realised that she, she that was her true love and that was why she was returned to New York. And that, that, to me, is a far better way to end her story than the way that the book handled it. And one day, the sun will come out. You might not even notice straight away. It'll be that faint. And then you'll catch yourself thinking about something or someone who has no connection with the past. Someone who's only yours. And you'll realise that this is where your life is. It's 
the, the adaptation it was it was nominated. I mean, the three nominations were picture, actress, and screenplay. And uh, for my money, it, it, it absolutely could have won best adapted screenplay. It lost to The Big Short. Is I I, I I was a fan of The Big Short. I did enjoy The Big Short, but um, I think the writing in Brooklyn is. Is, is is far greater than anything else that year in terms of adapted screenplays. It's just, it's such a wonderful film. And I, it, it's something I've, I can watch again and again and again. And, and you know, it, it, it really took the great basis of the book and it expanded it even further. And it, it, I think if, again, kind of like Devil Wears Prada, if you were to watch the film first and then go and read the book, you might be a little bit disappointed. They did a much, much better job with the film. I was just going to say that, yeah, I, I read it, I read a lot of it with my, with my daughter. She, she quite liked it the book not all of it because she's six but you know it is kind of it is disappointing in hindsight that you, if you read it after you see the film because of mm. the, pretty much what you said there the character arc and the, and the ending because in the film that ended is could have been a cliche it kind of is a cliche yeah but it's stood in yeah. such a way you know like it, it sort of goes to slow motion and she's just stood there in that dress mm. even, yeah. you know, even i get shivers for stuff like that <laughs> i'm a sucker for that I will have to. I've got to go pick up a lot of books. That's all. <laughs> you work after this podcast. Yeah, I know. I I'm not going to bed. Uh, clearly, I'm not allowed to sleep. Um, mine is American Psycho. It's oh, my next pick. Stunned. Uh, yeah. Well, obviously, Rowan, you sort of mentioned it's like the book is so extreme. I read the book before. Well, I say I read the book. I I just stopped reading halfway through. When I was eighteen, I thought I'd pick it up and try reading it. And oh my gosh, I just didn't know like what the hell this was that I was reading. Like so, when it came to watching the film, I was really sort of apprehensive about it because I was like, oh god, if it's you know what's it? I expect me like saw you know in terms of graphic <laughs> violence. Mm. Uh, but what we get with the the film is so interesting because it, it takes what is in the novel. All the dialogue is pretty much from the novel uh, and the scenes are there. But it doesn't really, I mean, we do have a bit of violence. So, you know, obviously it's quite graphic. But I feel like, it. you know, it could have so easily have been if it had been a less capable director trying to make it as graphic and gory as possible in order to sell tickets and I, I'm glad that they didn't go that way in terms of you know the approach they took and it really doesn't have a very much of a structure um, it's just mostly sort of Patrick Bateman sort of talking about what facial cream he uses and to moisturize and what exercises he does and how many stomach pushes and stuff like that um, and then with the the film they've actually kind of given it a bit more structure like you see him going more of a downward spiral I really like the film I think the book and the film are kind of different in a lot of ways yeah I think if I wanted to to read American Psycho I really have to be in the right mind frame and I've only really read it a couple of times since it's some of those novels where you're thinking how will they adapt this to, to the screen yeah because the film was like it was almost like super abridged like uh, everything mm. like that when it describes is there's chapters where it just describes what suit he's going to wear and stuff like that. Uh, yeah and, and, the, and it's all in the film but it's only like briefly and kind of thank mm. God because it just would have worked. It's just been him talking for two hours. I yeah, know. I don't know. Like, yeah, in the novel, it kind of works because you're this well, character. That's what makes him a nutter, essentially. Because, yes. Uh, his, yeah. his attention to detail it overshadows the violence. It's almost like he loves, you know, Genesis and it's going on about it. This is getting me mad. And you kind of got mad reading it. But I really liked it. Uh, and I thought, yeah, this one was psycho because this guy's yeah. a nutter. After I remove the ice pack, I use a deep pore cleanser lotion. In the shower, I use a water-activated gel cleanser. Then a honey almond body scrub. And on the face, an exfoliating gel scrub. Then I apply an herb mint facial mask which I leave on for 10 minutes while I prepare the rest of my routine. 
I always use an aftershave lotion with little or no alcohol because alcohol dries your face out and makes you look older. Then moisturizer, then an anti-aging eye balm followed by a final moisturizing protective lotion. There is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze, and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable, I simply am not there. I, I feel like in the, the film you get kind of more of a, the sense of the comedy. Um, yeah, the scenes yeah. are so, like the business card scene gets me every time. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I'm not saying like it's hilarious, laugh out loud, you know, but it's just the world of this. You know that there's probably been a lot of men who have been like, Oh, look at my card, you know. Um, well, so I, when he says, do you want to see the specials? And he says, not if you want to keep your spleen. <laughs> I, I say that to my kids. Oh, God. I feel sorry for your children. <laughs> really, that still, in, it still inspires me. But that's what makes it funny. My kid just laughs. <laughs> What's a sleep? Uh, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's my, my pick. So, uh, Robin, what's your next pick? So, uh, the British people will probably know more about Fingersmith by Sarah Waters because it was made into a, I think it was a two-part, I can't remember, um, with Sally Hawkins was in it and Imelda Staunton. And it was pretty good, actually. And uh, having read the, read the book, it's, the book is absolutely massive. Then the, um, the Handmaiden was also based on this book, which you wouldn't believe because... One is like Victorian England, uh, sort of about poverty and someone that goes and lives with wealthy uh, family. And The Handmaiden was like obviously Japan occupied Korea in the 30s. It's completely, completely different culture, completely different um, sort of class structure and everything uh, and history. But it really works, you know. And I know the author, Sarah Waters, was really. With, with what Patch and what did with with this, which you won't believe the guy directed Old Boy, you know. She was really happy with what he did, you know, especially from the, the, the story told by a man on film. You, you can see where there could be some problems. It's It's got all of, like, Patch and what's sort of visual style, the films he makes. He's very consistent, and I, I know people judge him by Old Boy, but some of his other films, I mean, Lady Vengeance... Is a similar sort of film, but it's very down to earth. There's not a lot of violence in it. There's a lot of it's a lot about the calculation of what this woman goes through and the handmaiden. So it seems like this Victorian novel is. It was written in 2002, by the way. It's not. She she actually researched and set it then, but you, it it works because it's got like there's two women that calculate and there's another man that basically drags this poor woman off to live with an heiress um, in order to con her so you can marry her take all the money and then chuck her into a mental institute and that's a, straight from the, the original book and then there's some twists and turns it kind of turns it on its head so the journey the women go through and their part they play is a lot is is a lot different in the in the in the south korean film i, I don't know if you've seen have you seen it yes i i've seen this film what i feel like i have to say that though I, guess. <laughs> I have, I have seen not this seen this one. Uh, this was my favorite film of last year. This is like okay. It picks like Dunkirk because it's a film that it just stays with you. And I've watched it. I don't know how many times I've watched it now, but I get something new from it every single time. And I only read the book recently, and I was amazed how I've transitioned in, into the into this into this film. You know, I, I've seen the TV version as well. And that's pretty good. You know, Sally Hawkins is is events in that. You should check it out. As she always is, but yeah, I was really surprised that this had this impact on me. You know, this it's done in such a way. You know, I really appreciate going back and reading the book. Just changed the way they changed it. The Victorian England becomes like this sort of old English and Japanese decor. If you watch the film, it's kind of a combination. Beautifully shot. The music is immense, and it, it's just for what it's done to take that from Victorian England and, and put it into that setting. 
is why I think it's one of the best adapted screenplays, you know. Oh gosh, I got so much reading to do. <laughs> um, Aaron, what's your final pick? Okay, so for my final one, I'm going with my favorite movie of all time. Um, and it it introduced me to who I would now probably say is my favorite author as well. So that's No Country for Old Men. Um, I think. You know, if you're talking about an adaptation, it'd probably be hard to find a better marriage of the, the book author. I think Cormac McCarthy is just one of the best authors there is. And then you get Indians who are arguably one of, if not the best screenwriters that we have. And it's just when you put them together, the writing in this movie is just incredible. And some of it is like the opening scene, you know, the, the dialogue, um, Tommy Lee Jones character speaks that's basically word for word from the book um but then there's other things that the cohen's certainly you know tweak a little bit and and but as with all the ones that we've talked about they just do such a good job of getting to the heart of cormac mccarthy's book which interestingly enough i would say i've read a lot of of his books and i would say no country for old men is lower in terms of my favorites of his books it, I, I mean it's still i think worthy of it's a really good novel but i think he's got some like the road um is fantastic blood meridian he's, he's got a lot that are just incredible but the movie um the, the coens just do a fascinating job of just elevating the source material there are just some scenes that just stick with you the texaco scene and the writing in that scene is incredible you know and the ending a lot of people you know have their issues with it and i get people maybe don't like it um, I just think the the movie has such a care and a trust for its audience to say, you know, we're going to let the audience figure it out. We're not going to just spell things out. You know, we're going to give you the pieces and you can sort of they're on your own. And I think Cormac McCarthy does that in his writing a lot. And I think the Coens did a fantastic job of it. You could be thinking about that as an original screenplay band as well. Yeah. So it's like that's, yeah. like, that's yeah. a compliment, compliment mm. to both parties, I think. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sir? The most you ever lost on a coin toss? I don't know. I couldn't say. Call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Well, we need to know what we're calling it for here. You need to call it. I can't call it for you. Well, it wouldn't be fair. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. You know what date is on this coin? No. 1958. It's been traveling 22 years to get here. And now it's here. And it's either heads or tails. And you have to say, call it. Well, look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. How's that? You stand to win everything, call it. And so, um, Doug, your final pick, please. My final pick is one that thankfully did win the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> we finally have one. We finally have one. That's Call Me By Your Name. And uh, when I read the book, it was one of the most beautiful books I've ever ever read. It's it's so well written. It's so uh, passionate and evocative, and just the the, the storyline, the love stories. It's it's so well written, and it, the the characters are, are amazingly sort of uh, fleshed out. And I I was honestly worried when they were announced they were adapting it to a film because I really I just didn't think they could capture that properly, but when they announced that Luca Guadagnino was was directing and that James Ivory was adapting, and then when they announced the cast, it was like, okay, I'm getting a little, little more uh, at ease with what they're what they're trying to create here. And and I think the, the film itself is is is. I mean, we, I, what else is there to be said that hasn't been said over the last <laughs> couple of years since it came out? It's 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 a masterpiece of a film. 
the performances from both Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer are amazing. The 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 love story that they managed to capture on screen is, you know, I think a lot of times with gay cinema it goes a little bit too far and it and it can be you know a, a bit cliche and a bit a bit silly sometimes. And and the, there's none of that here. It it really reminded me a lot of Brokeback Mountain. Uh, just the connection between the two actors was immediate from their first scene together and. I think the way that James Ivory adapted the book was so well done, and the, I mean, there's some there's some big differences. I think the the book itself has a epilogue that then jumps forward in the future. There's there's some differences in the way that the story wraps up. Um, that phone call scene at the end doesn't happen in the book. They see each other again, and uh, they kind of realise that they've moved on, and and that that they're, they're kind of not destined to be together. Whereas the film is a little bit more sort of uh, ambiguous in 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 maybe there's still some hope. One you never know, and they know about us. I figured. How? Well, the way your dad spoke to me, she made me feel like I was a part of the family, almost like a son-in-law. You're so lucky. My father would have carted me off to a correctional facility. Elio. Obviously, now in the last week we've heard the news that they're gonna. There's going to be a second book coming uh, later this year, and obviously, everybody will be hoping that gets adapted into a film. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, opti- yeah, a little anxious about that. I, I would, I would prefer it on its own. And I, I saw an interview with Army Hammer this week where he said the same thing. Like the first one is so perfect. Should we really even try to kind of capture mm-hmm. that again? Um, I know everyone's kind of desperate to see those characters and, you know, potentially see them together. Uh, but I, I I think if they decided not to, I wouldn't be too disappointed because I think this, this gets to stand on its own. And it's it's such a beautiful film and it's such a beautiful book. And, and I think they both complement each other quite well. The way it ended was quite heartbreaking, obviously, but it, it felt quite earnest and fit this, the story. Talking about... Um, friends meeting up for you know revisiting each other. My pick, is, my last pick is the Shawshank Redemption. Nice. And, yes. Uh, and it's based on the Stephen King sort of. Uh, I guess it's a very short. It's not a short story. It's kind of like a novel, a very novella. short novel, yeah. novella. Yeah. There's been some changes in in the uh, from the the, the big screen. Uh, Tim Tim Robbins' character Andy is described as quite short man, <laughs> and obviously Tim Robbins is is quite tall. Um, uh, but probably the the biggest change was the character uh, of Ray, you know, being played by Morgan Freeman. Uh, the character in the book is described as an Irish man. He's ginger in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. I just can't picture anyone else in that role now. It just everything about the film is just perfect. And the music, the cinematography, the ending, of course, it just I think is uh, I think it's, it's the problem is it's kind of tricky with Stephen King's work because he creates such a vivid world, uh, and, and these characters are so sort of, have so much depth to them. I, I, I still love it now. I think we look at modern films and try to say what modern films are classics. I think mm. that that is obviously that ends its you know, like timeless status. I think people absolutely adore it even today. If you have a conversation like we are now, you think, oh yeah. If it was on TV, you would stop and watch it. Yeah. Yep. Every time. It, it, yep. is, it, is, it is a great film. I actually just recently rewatched it after it had been a long time since I had seen it. And it, yeah, it completely, like you say, Bianca, just holds up. And, you know, you mentioned the depth of the characters. What I think is fascinating about this one is that even some of the, you know, you might think are side characters have mm. so much, to, like a character like Brooks. Like, yes. you, I mean, you feel yeah. so much for that character and it's, And to crawl to freedom through 500 yards of shit-smelling foulness I can't even imagine. 
Or maybe I just don't want to. Five hundred yards. That's the length of five football fields. Just shy of half a mile. There's, there's so much about that movie that's great. The ending, like you said, is just... I think a lesser movie would have ended, you know, after he gets out. It's like that was a great story in its own of just him getting out. Uh, but then it goes on after that and you realize, oh my goodness, that just is ten times better way to end the movie.